Hi, I'm Kara Oakleaf. And I'm Susie Rigdon. Welcome to the Fall for the Book podcast, part of the Watershed Lit Station. This season, which is part of Fall for the Book's 25th anniversary celebration, we're sitting down with writers from across the genre spectrum. To hear all of our episodes, subscribe on SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Visit fallforthebook.org to find out more. Today, we are excited to talk to Moshgan Gazirad, who is the author of The House on Sun Street. And as I was reading this, Kara, the, the thing that really felt sweet and really stood out to me was the sharing of stories that happens, of storytelling, of, of reading stories, especially between the grandfather uh, and the young um, character Moji. And so I wanted to ask you a little bit about, you know, and just sort of short and sweet about some, maybe some of these stories that have really shaped you or these experiences that are sort of similar to what Moji experienced. It, it's it's very hard to to read those sections of the book without automatically thinking about like the times that I spent reading in bed with my mother when I was a little kid and um and 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 those and those moments of of being read to as a child and then and then again like being being able to like now be the parent who's reading to your uh, to your own child um especially when you um, end up like revisiting stories that, that you were read as a child and and having those those books kind of come back to you um in another form years and years later and just like feeling the impact of how some of those stories stick with you across your life yeah i just you know that feeling exactly that feeling of nostalgia opening up a book that you haven't looked at in like 20 or 30 years and just like wow this is such a big deal i remember this i remember these feelings associated with it um, and I think there's something really special. We're not particularly a, a you know, America's not really a, a a country that like reads out loud, that reads together, you know, that has sort of this community moment of of reading out loud. That's why I, you know, I love going to readings and audiobooks are great. And, you know, reading with my son kind of brings back that community, that shared experience, the sort of theatrical side of books that's so fun. Yeah, absolutely. I always feel jealous when I... um uh every year when you hear about like the Icelandic holiday of like uh right before Christmas everybody is gifted a book and you all read together um and I just I always think about that as like oh like it really can be this sort of shared communal event um to to, to read a story together absolutely and to get everybody involved and that's very much sort of what we see in this book especially sort of in in Moji's early life which is really lovely um, and we're we're really excited to, uh, to 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 talk with her today about um, about uh, her life and how it it's influenced this this fantastic book that uh, that she's just written, The House on Sun Street. Mojgan Gazirad is a medical doctor and currently works as an, as an assistant professor of pediatrics at the George Washington University. She holds an MFA in creative writing and has published three collections of short stories in Farsi. She's the author of The House on Sun Street. Mojgan, thank you so much for joining us today. We're excited to talk with you. Thank you so much, Kara and Susie, for giving me this opportunity to talk with you both. I'm so excited to talk with you guys, too, in this on this interview. So we wanted to open up by talking about The House on Sun Street. It's a, an autobiographical novel depicting your memories growing up in Tehran during the Islamic Revolution, as well as uh, the years of war between Iran and Iraq after the revolution. So could you talk a little bit about the experience of drawing from your memories? What was that process like for you? Because these, there's a wide variety, but they're often quite heavy. It's true, Susie. Yes. Um, 
drawing someone's memory can be, as you said, quite heavy and on the writer because uh, sometimes it taps into bitter memories and traumatic memories uh, that a writer might have had in her past or in his past. So it is not easy, but luckily I have had many uh, good um, memories back from my family and my grandfather and my grandmother, which you can see in the house on Sun Street that uh, helped me gather that information and write it in a way that it wasn't that uh, like bitter or sad for me. I wrote this book having them in mind and all the uh, wonderful memories and experiences I had against all what was happening in the country with the revolution and the terror of things that we didn't know how it's going to uh, come along and the, the situation of the country that we didn't know what's going to happen. So even though I was very terrified by those events that I've described in the book, I have still had the support of my family and my extended family that really helped me through this. And yes, um, the story is a biographical, autobiographical novel, meaning that it is derived from my own experiences of life, but also there are um, events in the book that are, I mean, I've ex there are scenes in the book that are fictional and then I, I they're not really quite uh, as it happened in my life. That's one of the things I'm always curious about with um, with an autobiographical novel, right? Did you ever consider whether you wanted to write something that would just be straight memoir or what What was it that, that sort of appealed to you about the idea of, of telling the story, you know, in the form of autofiction? Okay. Yes. Yeah, so that's an interesting question, Kara. Um, I um, had the idea of writing this uh, book for a long time, like say 10 years ago when I um, was like, established in the United States and I was always thinking of writing about that my memories of revolution and war in Iran for an American audience but I wasn't quite sure what form I'm going to write so then I started my MFA program in 2016 and at that point I decided to start this as writing as a as a fiction and so I was going over the narrative arc and wanted to make sure that this is going to be fiction. But as I started writing more and more, many of my mentors said, oh, well, this looks sounds like a very much like a memoir because you're talking about your emotions and about your life events. So what do you want to make it as a memoir? So I, I kind of like did write it as a memoir, but then I kept the narrative arc and the, the way that you can see in the book as um as a, a like as a like a hero's journey uh, in the book but then uh at some point i felt that, like you know i my hands are kind of tied when i wanted to talk about making the characters wo work as i wanted to work so that's why i decided to go you know what i really want to make it as an autobiographical fiction so that there are fictions and the things that I, I want to mention in the book is that, you know, that sometimes people do things in memoir. I really didn't want to write something that is like 100% memoir and then say, oh, well, who's this character in your book? No, but as you can see, my best uh, character, my teacher, 
is the one that who kind of like kind of mix of a couple of my teachers into one character which I love in the book so yeah it is coming from my own experience but it's really it is and it is not so that's how it worked at the end and I'm so happy that it came up like this because I felt like uh, when you're writing a memoir people can kind of like well you know it's it is hard because parents read it my uncles and aunts read it and they say oh well well why have you written this about us but then when it's a fiction thing you there's no 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 association with anybody that you can make and then make them kind of like upset about the book one of the things you mentioned a little bit earlier was this feeling of being unsure of what was going to happen and that's just like such a theme in in moji's story just being unsure as things are changing and and i just felt so much tension i felt like oh, not all the time but a lot of the time there's just so much tension it's physical danger or insecurity or social pressure or whatever it is um just some really really tense moments i'm thinking in particular you know when uh, mama's walking her and, and marmar through the crowd right sort of near the beginning as things are um, lifting off. But so, you know, you're balancing a lot of these, these big moments with big personal moments or even small personal moments that are really significant. How are, how did you balance these depictions of Moji's very universal sort of adolescent experiences, like developing a crush, um, with the major political upheaval and those, those really striking moments she experiences? So that's a great question. I think that um, basically, basically, it is. This is what I actually Moji had gone through in her life. You know, to be a, a curative, cu curious child, to be a curious child, wanting to know a lot of things, to go to the pain of adolescence, teenage years, is something universal to all of us, no matter where we live in this world. But these changes happen to us but then at the same time when all these things are happening to moji there is something greater outside in the world that is also happening that she has to also kind of manage and balance what's happening in the world and what's happening in her own world so to me writing these was like like just going back and like thinking about all the experiences and all the thoughts i had or emotions i had at that time when I was a young child or when I was an adolescent and then sense of terror as you can see or ten sense of like tension like that night of revolution yes that is what one thing that I experienced because I didn't know where my mom is taking me what is going to happen these men that are all over around in the very familiar square that I've been raised in and now it's becoming like a trench everywhere that had that happened that experience happened so all i had to do was to go over go back and try to picture it for my reader so she or he realizes what was happening in moji's life so in in a way for me it was just like going back thinking and trying to explain what happened i didn't have to kind of like create this because this was basically happening for moji in her young and teenage years my job was to just go back analyze and write it down for my readers you know what what, what you're kind of saying about how all of this just kind of 
like it's organic to what the story was. You know, one of the things I thought about with this book is when when you're writing about an, an adolescent character, so much of the story is naturally going to be about identity and and how identity is formed. Um, and in this book, it really feels like Moji's identity is so tied to the changes that that are happening in her home, whether that's um, the political or cultural changes that are happening or her her moving to a new place. And what, could you talk a little bit more about like those changes in identity and how that kind of shaped Moji as a character? It's interesting that I, I think that's like a question that I can answer in like a little bit more detailed way. You know, when I was talking to my editor and publisher, um, the ones who decided to publish this was they were kind of like, you know, there were moments and like scenes in the book that they were like kind of asking and questioning how this happened. And then over there, I had to explain and talk about the adolescent years, maybe teenage years for a girl in Iran in the 80s um, or early 90s was a very different experience in comparison to what a teenage will go through even in 80s and 90s in the United States. You know, we didn't have much of like extensive talk about like what identity is going for a teenager or we didn't even have that much of a talk about, oh, how about me and what is happening with me and about this sense of self and self-growth. It wasn't like this because you see Iran, even before the revolution was like a like a it's it was a like a kingdom meaning that majority of the 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 it's not about individual individual like the like a democratic society so individualism is not a big part in what is happening in the country so it's less of a talk about what's happening with me and my growth and my development rather than the things that is happening in the society. You see what I'm saying? So I was never approached by anybody, including my family, asking me, okay, so what is happening with you? What is happening in your development? How are you feeling about this? Nobody asked me. I mean, this is just like I am I am there on my on my own. And doing, doing not not knowing anything about what's happening in the world around me and inside me, with all these things that are changing outside and changing in me and not knowing not knowing what to do. So that's how I get interested in reading the novels because I felt oh okay this person is kind of like me that she is going through the experience like me the things that nobody has already talked to me. That's why. The day became like a, a somewhere that I can ref- take refuge in. Books became a refuge to me, a, a refuge to me. And then you again going back to like in eighties and nineties in Iran. You know they hardly had m- movies. Or I remember that in eighties, like we only had like uh, it's Iranian. We didn't have any kind of like videos came back later on Betamax videos came back later so it was only Iranian national tv and they only uh, broadcast one movie a week on Friday afternoon and that was it so there was not not much of entertainment back there it was the only thing that you could 
like go and like let your imagination go to where the books and then also they were kind of like tapping in those things also not letting us as teenagers get access to those books as well so you can see that how they were limiting us in to understand our own selves and our own development in that kind of society that they were building in Iran. We can see that connection with books so strongly. Of course, you have the 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 weaving of One Thousand and One Nights throughout as the epigraphs for each chapter, and what you're saying has just like I mean, what? Of course, I noticed the the strong connection between each epigraph and the story and what was happening throughout the book. But of course, that you know what you're saying just illuminates that for me that you and, and Moji are identifying with these stories and say this is this is what's going on. This is the hero's journey, or this is sort of what's happening in my life I see it echoed in the story and there's some really sort of sweet and tender moments you know sitting together outside and reading the stories um, grandfather reading the stories and making those um, connections and then of course it's following um, Moji throughout her life why this book what what sort of is so special to you about it is it are is it these memories of, of reading it together or what's sort of that connection and, and why feature it so heavily throughout the book I think that that is, I mean, I think I was lucky. I was lucky to have a grandfather who was fond of stories and he he told me those stories, you know. It, and then the, the stories, that, I mean, I again, I think that I was lucky because those stories are so fascinating and so imaginative and it brings out a world that it was so different from the society that I was living that grabbed my attention and I kind of like wanted to jump into those uh, stories I really like to like for example like in Sinbad and many stories that people like boarded on a ship and went to another uh, society I every time he started reading to me I felt okay I am being transported from this country who that is kind of like we don't know what's going to happen tomorrow to this wonderful world that has these beautiful girls and beautiful ladies and the Paris, which are the good angels and the Deves who or uh, like Ifrit who are the like uh, the evil and how we know and how the spell can just help us. So as I said, n- number one, because the story was fascinating and number two is just because that was what how was, I was exposed to storytelling by my grandfather. He loved it and he told me and then I it had such a strong like memory it, it built a, such a strong memory in me all those moments that he was telling me those stories and i felt like he seeded this this desire to tell stories in me with those in those moments i became fascinated and i forever, forever remained fascinated to telling these stories how you know how in, in my life and what I what I loved with it is Moji is commenting on, you know, you know, the grandfather doesn't keep any of sort of the dark details too. Re- really just reading everything. These are not, you know, your Disney-fied stories that kind of gloss over all the sides of of humanity. It really goes into that. And I think that really echoes sort of in the the book as a whole. And I'm wondering, do you have a favorite story from 1001 Nights? Um, I think that the I do have a, I do have a favorite story. I feel like, as I said, the story of Badr Budur or the story of Alaeddin, 
and uh, the the magic lamp was my favorite story not because of Aladdin, because of the princess because of her beauty because of the quest that Aladdin had for her and uh, what he went through to get to her and as you mentioned this these stories were not you know they were kind of like our own lives they were not like a Disney version, as you mentioned, Disney version that there's no blood, there's happy ending. All that. It wasn't like this. We know that this is life. It, the, the main character can die in the big middle of it because this is supposed to be life as it is. Yes, I do love that story. And another story that I absolutely love is this, the story of John Shah and Shamseh, which you see that it comes out at a later enough. That that beauty of Shamse, how she was beautiful and how she how she kind of like raised herself to a point that she became very much ready to go back to her homeland. That is also one of my favorite stories because you can see that in this character how she starts as a young girl and evolves in her love and he gets she gets ready to a point that she can go back to where she belonged so I really like these stories and they stood up in all those stories that my my grandfather told me I was afraid of the ifrits when he was telling me those I always thought well where were are you going and you know that in that, that time when you're five or six you kind of like you still have a magical thinking and you can think that well maybe these are real you you don't know so I was scared of them Later on, I figured, oh, these are worse stories. But at that point, I was very scared of them. I thought that well, they were going to do something bad to me or to my father when he was going to travel. You know, I you're you're kind of talking about how these these stories felt it felt real in some ways, like they were they were things that you you could feel like you saw your own life reflected in, like, and you hear these stories and it feels like this is real life. And it just feels like it it really is so important for for someone growing up to be able to see themselves in the literature they read and 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 find a human connection in that way. You mentioned a little bit earlier about um having limited media and entertainment and and even uh, books in um in um in Iran after the in the years after the Islamic Revolution. I wondered if you could talk a little bit about how how thing how books were limited. In those years and and it, it's something that's i think on our on our minds in the u.s today too when, yeah. when when more and more books are being challenged in schools yes i think that 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 i think that it's a perfect timing for this book when it comes out because now all this book banning that is happening in florida and other states that people are thinking oh this this book is not suitable for for a young mind to read it was pretty much the same and, and even worse, back in Iran, after the years of revolution, as you might know, after the revolution, when revolution ha happens in 1979, everything, things change. But the major changes, which were the structural changes, didn't happen until a couple years later, when then when Khomeini uh, like, announced a major cultural revolution. And that's how they closed the universities, because they thought, well, there are doctors and professors and all the attend like teachers need to be re like evaluated and see if they are suitable to teach in universities and teach in high schools. So they kind of like, first of all, they closed the universities for two years. All the higher education institutions were closed. And 
they had like it they heavily like evaluated the teachers and my mom was a teacher too so they went through a like uh, an extensive uh, qualification requalification of people who are teaching in schools and what also they did at that time in Iran is that they established what they call it this Islamic counselors that they were new people revolutionary people who were assigned to high schools and middle schools and elementary schools to give the idea of the Islamic revolution in like indoctrinate or like like bring the idea of the revolution to schools and these people were kind of like not being liked by so many uh, the older teachers they all thought well these are all like the revolutionaries now coming into school and then then they all started looking at the books and they started committees in every book and they deemed and said okay these books are not suitable for kids they should not be especially in high school especially in Moji's high school as you can see which is a very special high school for talented and gifted so they had tons of books there in English also that they could be a great start for great mind so they decided well these are not um based on our like guidelines or our like Islamic standards they are not suitable for kids so one by one they took them out I mean I it was just in front of my eyes we could see something we wanted this 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 year and next year we came and said they're not gone they're not even being borrowed to kids and that was our only source because you see public libraries were already all being kind of like washed out of those books you, you can can imagine that when I was in the beginning of my uh like at the end of my high school years I was very fascinated to read the Old Testament and you can't believe that you could not find Old Testament in anywhere in the in Iran only place you could find is that if you would have gone and knocked at the door of a kind of a, like a synagogue if you could find a synagogue and you could have asked oh, can I have an Old Testament this is how you could reach Old Testament and you can imagine even the, all these books that you have even at some point Shahnameh which is one of our like the epic of Persian kings was kind of like difficult to find out so difficult difficult to get so it had it it was becoming like a quest to find the book that you wanted to find and you could some people I remember that I had like years later I had friends who they had the books in their personal library that could have borrowed it from my friends and then give it back to them because it wasn't and then media obviously there was at that point there was no cell phones there were no tv people didn't have better max and the films were not there were not anything else there was nothing not anything else to help i mean uh, help or feed a young mind yeah i mean it, and and now to today when i hear this going on back in florida that this book is not being and are getting pulling back after high i just feel so sad I, it brings back better memories for me memories of i think okay well that was um that was a uh, the those was a theocratic kind of like dictatorship dictatorship in Iran. Why is this happening in our uh, free world here in the United States? It's I mean it's honestly sad to see these happen here in this society.
Yeah, it really, it really does feel like a, a very frightening parallel. I think um, wa wa watching something like that happen here, and and watching libraries and you know librarians who, I think we we all trust imminently <laughs> to to like select books to to make available to children, um, and and having those those roles questioned is um, uh, is really frightening, and it's something that it feels very surprising that it happens here and, and and happens in contemporary times. I mean, you wonder why. I wonder why. I mean, I always think, okay, well, they were they wanted the they wanted only the Islamic doctrine to be taught to Iranian girls and boys in schools. But why are we having this happening in the United States? Why are these why are these books getting banned? I mean and then, as I said, and as you can read in my book, my one of my, my being, I think that being blessings or lucky, whatever you want to name it, is that I could, I was exposed, and I and my I was and I was, I left onto myself to judge about the things myself, not to be like being uh, in a situation that somebody else decides for me if this good is book for you or not. The same thing like like 1001 Nights, my, my grandfather never, when he was reading those stories, he never censored them and said, oh, this is not suitable for kids because then, then you will realize these are, the, these are the reality of life and the kids understand what is happening in the world and they can like judge on their own later on in life and decide about it. I personally think that one of the worst thing that can happen in a free society is that we limit our teenage adolescent kids on being exposed to different ideas because we think these are dangerous for them to know because the young man mind is capable of like reading through these things and finding out about them before us coming in and deciding what is good or what is bad for them i feel like it's really fantastic for um for people to be able to to read a story like this one right now, honestly, um, and and be able to kind of recognize those parallels and and recognize um, what's happening in the U.S. for what it is. I think that's why I think it is a timely book. Uh, I hope that people can 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 see through the that like you know the experiences of a young girl how she was tormented when she was not allowed to reach those books that she wanted. And it's pretty much the same. Maybe years later, who knows, in the United States, somebody will write up her experience or his experience of what's happening right now in the United States. That's a lot to a lot to think about. And I know many of our listeners have been thinking about it these last few months and years um, as things are happening. So we want to we want to end on a slightly different note and we're always really interested when we talk to writers about other careers and of course you have this uh really big career you're a, a NICU doctor and so we wanted to to ask you just a little bit um about that and um do you see these occupations as being entirely separate or do your experiences as a doctor influence your writing and if so how yes yes so this is a Actually, a question that so many people ask me. This is the first thing that kind of like ask me. They ask me, "How are you an executive director? How do you find time to write?" 
And I remember a few years ago when I had an interview with VOA, Voice of America, about my last book, In the Solitude of Suitcases, she asked me, okay, I want to start with this. So how do you find time or how does your work or your career like affect your writing? Yes, it is really hard to manage the time because, you see, I am a full-time doctor who I'm working at a hospital. It is hard to manage time between work and life and writing. But, well, I think that many things on, in life are hard and we have to manage them. And over the years, I have learned how to manage my time to be able to write as well as work as a doctor in the NICU and also like all manage my family life. Um, but I also keep this as, I feel like this is also a blessing because being in the NICU, uh, the time of birth, which is one of the most stressful and happy, sometimes sad moments in life for parents, has a lot of like experiences and people experience their like ultimate, I don't know, like very deep emotions and on un mass at the time of the birth of the child. So they bring a lot of human, like human emotion and experience with them to my work. And I have, that has been enriching uh, or my own experiences of life. And as a writer too, I can see those emotions exposed. I can see the anger. I can see the like frustration. I can see the joy. Every moment that you can see that happens in life, you know, we are we as human beings are good with, with our like um, uh, gray matter helping us to control our emotions. But at the time of a birth of a baby, people's emotions are exposed. People don't just forget about everything and become. And you can see that. And that for me is a unique experience. And I have been building on that. So there are stories, especially in my previous like collection of stories, stories that I have written about these um, emotions uh, that I've seen in NICU. But so far, it really helps me. It helps me to have that, um, to keep that um, human experience, human touch in my life. You know, it's not just words. It's not just memories. It's everyday human emotion that I go through. It makes me a better doctor and a better writer. So, yes, I take the opportunity. Sometimes I, I, I complain that, you know, I am tired. I come home after a 24-hour shift. I might not be able to do any writing. But then I think, well, but you have had the blessing of being in these emotions and feeling them and then reflecting on them later on in your life so it's just that well life is hard but well you have managed and you will manage so and then also you're doing such so many good things and for those parents and it's a it's a very satisfying and um satisfying and i don't know um helpful job for the society so that i've been i think that i i have come in to peace with this um, situation of life that I have and I cherish it now. Well, it's been so wonderful to talk to you today to hear more about your life and how that's influenced your writing and 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 this 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 really fantastic book that that we both so enjoyed. Um, thank you so much for being here with us today. 
thank you, Kara and Susie. Actually, it was a very, it was an honor for me to see, to talk to you both here. And thank you for the great questions I've had, you guys had. And um, it has been a unique experience for me too. I think that's one of the first interviews I'm having about the book, which makes me very happy to be here with you. And thank you so much. The Fall for the Book podcast is produced by Jordan Bostick as a part of Watershed Lit. For more episodes, you can follow us on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. Fall for the Book is a nonprofit literary arts organization, and you can find more information about our programs and events at fallforthebook.org.